Well, good morning. I'd ask that you would take God's Word into your hand and turn to the book of Malachi. Week number 11 out of this last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And today we come to chapter 3 in this wonderful book that we have been studying. We've been looking at an ancient truth for modern uh, times looking at how we can apply this book that was written more than 2,500 years ago to our life in the year 2008. And for a way of review, as you're turning to Malachi chapter 3, we see that there is a discussion that is ongoing between God and His people. And it's not all that good of a conversation. God is upset with His people, and frankly, His people are upset with God. It seems to be somewhat of an argument that's going on between God and the people of Israel. And what begins to happen, we see, is as a result of uh, many decisions in the past of Israel's life, they had grown casual in their walk with God. They had said that there were the things that God had said were most important to them were not as important as they were to God. And as a result of that, we learn in chapter 2 that relationship after relationship had been broken. The reason why these relationships had become broken was because the people found themselves spending more time in the things of the world than in the things that were most important to God. And as a result of that, they did not put forth the time or the energy in the relationship with God that God deserves. I don't know about you, but that seems to be a good application for us today to be so very careful as we go through this world, as we go through this life, never to make anything more important than our walk with God. To not start pursuing things as noble as they may be in this world, putting more energy and more time in the things of this world than the things of God. And as a result of this type of pursuit, as a result of this type of attitude, we see that the people had forgotten to serve their God wholeheartedly. What happened is, is they got so uh, enthralled with what was going on in their world and the daily activities that the Bible says in chapter one that they had forgotten that God was their master. They had forgotten that God was their father. And as a result of that, they no longer honored nor respected God. And what happens is is they find themselves giving God their leftovers. If you don't honor and respect God, the last thing you're going to do is give God something of value from your life. And that's what's going on in the book of Malachi. So what does God do? He confronts them with their sin. And it's not just him yelling at his people, but in the book of Malachi, God, if you will, peppers in different phrases and words of grace and love. He starts out in verse 2 of chapter 1 when he says, I have loved you. The idea there is I've loved you. I always will love you as I always have loved you. It's this ongoing and perpetual love. We see even in the last part of our text last week in verse 6 of chapter 3 that God says, because I have not changed, you have not been destroyed. God's grace in that It was in last week's message that we talked about the important doctrine of immutability. God does not change. And some may be sitting there saying, well, that was was one of your drier messages last week, Tim. There's a lot of information, not a lot of funny stories. But it was so important that we dealt with that before we get to our text this morning. 
The reason is, is that God doesn't change. And the reason why the people are still around in Israel, why they're still being able to enjoy their lives, is because God has shown grace and love that is consistent with his character. So now God goes on. And he begins to ask them to return. He says, I want you to return to me. Not only are they not destroyed, but God gives them the opportunity to have intimacy with them. Even though the text tells us that even in the time of their forefathers, they had not changed themselves because they continually were faithless in their walk with God. And so what does he say? He says, return to me. They say, how are we to return to you? And I'll get into more of that later. But he begins to talk about their finances. He begins to talk about what is going on when it comes to giving of one of the most important things that we have in our lives, our assets or our money. And what does he go on to say? He says, if we don't do this, we're robbing God. Now, before I have a stand for the reading of God's word this morning, I want to make a couple things clear. Number one, we at Village Bible Church preach the word one verse at a time. We start in verse one. We end when the rest of the book is done. And in the five years that I've been teaching here at Village Bible Church, I looked up how many times I spoke on the subject of money or giving. In five years, this church has spent seven Sundays looking at the subject of giving or money. In fact, we are so not about money, we just put boxes on the back wall to make sure that no one is overly offended. This church was started by many people who came out of the Roman Catholic background who said, I'm tired of the church asking for my money. And when they put this church together some 35, 36 years ago, they said, you know what? We don't want to be that way. We want people to be able to give and that that be between them and God. And we've remained faithful and true up to this time. We know that God takes care of us. In all the years that we've been around, not one bill has gone unpaid. Not one staff member has ever not seen a paycheck. Not one mortgage payment has gone in default. God, as he says, is completely faithful. And we're so excited to be a part of that. But we come to a text this morning that I give no apologies to. Because we come to verses 6 through 12 where it speaks on this subject of giving. And giving is something important that we need to talk about. But I want to make sure that those who haven't been a part of this church understand that they haven't come into a week after yet a whole bunch of other weeks where again the church is talking about money. The church has a bad reputation when it comes to dealing with money. There's a story that's once told of a rich Texan steel ranch, uh, 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 let me do that again, bull rancher, steer rancher in Texas, who called the small local church and asked the secretary, where is the head hog? She says, excuse me. He says, I'm looking for the head hog, the main honcho, your pastor. And she says, I'm sorry, we do not call our pastor the head hog, if you will. And he says, well, that's what we do here on the uh, steer farm. We, we call them those types of things. If you're in charge, you're the head honcho. You're the big hog, if you will. And she says, excuse me, sir, but we call our, our pastor, pastor or reverend. And he says, all right, well, could you tell your pastor or reverend that I'm wanting to give the church $100,000? The secretary said, no problem, the big pig will be with you shortly. (laughs) It seems, and if you do that to me, 
You can call me Boss Hog is what you can call me. It seems that the church is known not for its love or its grace or its service to people or its service to God, but about its hunger for money. And yet that's not what this church is about. We're not hungry about for money. We are hungry for life change. But I will tell you this. It takes money to do ministry. And as we look at this, let us be reminded that that's what the Lord talks about. Even as the Apostle Paul talks about uh, taking care of those who work diligently in the ministry of the word, in the ministry of serving the people of God, that a worker deserves his wage. So this is something that we don't just pull out of Scripture and say, well, we can't find a text. The Bible's full of arguments on why not only we should give, but that the church should be able to have money to minister to others. So with that disclaimer, I would ask that you would stand for the reading of God's word. As we look at Malachi chapter three, starting in verse one to verse 12. Malachi chapter three, verses one through 12. This is what the text says. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he'll be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in the former years. So I'll come near to you for judgment. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, who deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me says the Lord Almighty, our text for the morning. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Verse 8 says, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Father God, we come before you, and Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, uh, we thank you that you speak on such important topics as our giving back to you. Father, I pray, I, I know our culture. Father, I know even when it comes to my own finances and my own money, I begin to think that it's mine, it's no one else's, it's no one else's business. Yet, Lord, you say it's all about you and it's all your business. So, Father, I pray, especially today, that you would work in our hearts and our minds to open our eyes to see 
giving as you would want us to see it. That we would view it as something that is done out of a grateful heart for all that you have done for us. Oh, Father, let us not be like the people in Malachi's day who gave the blind and the lame animals for offerings and who robbed you in their giving of tithes and offerings. Lord, that you would look upon us and see a people of faith who not only trust you with our own salvation and eternal destiny, but who trust you with everything that we have because, in fact, everything is yours. That we would understand and truly realize the nature of our stewardship, that we are managers and you are the owner of all things. So, Lord, impress that upon our hearts as we open your word this morning. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. The text this morning speaks in what God says that the people are robbing him. They're robbing him. Literally in the Hebrew, this word robbed means to take forcibly. What God is saying is you are taking something that is mine by force. That's an amazing accusation for the God of the universe to say to finite man, you are robbing me. But that's what God says. He speaks about this theme of theft or robbery. You know, theft in our country today is far too common. According to the FBI website, there are more robberies and thefts that take place in our country than any other crime that is committed. We are a people who like to steal. As a result of that, billions upon billions of dollars in assets find themselves being stolen from individuals in our country every year. Now, if you think that uh, robbery is in your future, I can tell you, and you may not like to hear this by some people, but robbery can be a good business. It can be a big business. In fact, I was studying what the uh, five largest robberies of all time in the world have been. And I was amazed to see that in the top two through five robberies of all time, they netted the thieves more than $742 million. That's an amazing amount of money. We're not talking about just stealing, uh, you know, 20 bucks or or stealing a, a shirt off the rack at Walmart. This is huge money. But let me just assure you that stealing a dime or $742 million is still stealing in the eyes of God. Yet according to uh, sources on the internet, those number two through five, even though they netted $742 million, the number one robbery of all time makes that look like chump change. Does anybody know what the uh, number one robbery of all time was? Excuse me, was? Anybody know? It happened on March 18th, 2003. Can I give you any more? Anybody got it? What's that? No, not Enron. 2003. Anybody know what we were doing in 2003? What has been the major news story for the last five years here in America? The war, right? Five hours before the United States started bombing the nation of Iraq, sources tell us through the CIA that Saddam Hussein with a large group of armed assailants stormed the central bank of Iraq. 
and in a matter of 25 minutes stole more than one billion dollars. One billion dollars. Now, we know that we found, uh, we know just four months later that coalition troops would find in one of his mansions that his walls were filled with more than $650 million. Now, that's an expensive house with some great property value. I was amazed to think of how much that would have been. And I read in the article in the Wall Street Journal that the money was in 20s, 50s, and 100s. $650 million in 20s, 50s, and 100s. That is an amazing amount of drywall to cover. That's a lot of space. We know that we don't, we don't know what happened with the other, uh, what would it be, uh, $350 million. Uh, Saddam must have spent it at some point as he was fleeing, uh, in his time of struggle. We know his sons were able to get some of that money. But it seems, It seems by statistics that if you want to get into the line of being a thief, the line of work of being a thief or being a robber, that it's not real smart to do. In fact, the FBI says that of all the crimes, your highest probability of getting caught is when you steal something. You have a three out of four, a 75% chance of getting caught whenever you steal. It doesn't seem like you'd be all that smart, that you'd be all that wise uh, to grab that money from mom or dad's purse or wallet or to grab that shirt off the rack at a store because 75% of the the time, thieves are going to get caught. And so it makes us understand that thieves are uh, not always the smartest or sharpest tools in the shed. I want to read a couple uh, of these smart guys with you. In Colorado Springs, Colorado, a guy walked into a little corner store with a shotgun and demanded all the cash from the cash drawer. After the cashier put all the cash in the bag, the robber saw a bottle of whiskey that he wanted behind the counter on the shelf. He told the cashier to bag it up, but she refused to do so. She said, I don't think you're 21. The robber said that he was. But the clerk said, no, I don't think so. And because of that, the clerk didn't believe him. At this point, the robber's upset, all caught on video camera. The robber takes out his driver's license (laughs) and gives it to the clerk and says, see, I'm 21. The cashier promptly gave him the whiskey, put it into the bag, and the robber ran off from the store with his loot. At that point, the cashier promptly called the police, gave the name and the address of the robber that he had gotten off of the license. Uh, Two hours later, the robber was arrested. In Kentucky, two... I'm not supposed to say anything derogatory about Kentucky, so I won't. But this one fits Kentucky. I know. Two men tried to pull the front of an ATM machine by running a chain from the machine to the bumper of their old pickup truck. Instead of pulling off the front panel of the ATM machine, they pulled off the bumper off their truck. Now they were scared, and so they left the scene and drove home. With the, sta- with the chain still attached to the machine, the bumper still attached to the chain, and the vehicle's license plate number still attached to the bumper. Virginia. Two men in a pickup truck. It seems that pickup trucks are a big motif here. Two men in a pickup truck went to a new home site to steal a refrigerator. 
banging up floors and walls, etc. They snatch a refrigerator from one of the houses, loaded it up onto the pickup truck. They promptly got in the truck, but they got stuck in the mud. The two men surmised, being brain surgeons that they were, that the refrigerator was far too heavy. So what did they do? Banging up more walls and floors, they put the refrigerator back into the house and returned to the pickup truck only to realize that they had locked the keys in the truck. So they abandoned it. One final one I have. This one's awesome. San Francisco, California. It seems a man wanting to rob a downtown Bank of America branch walked in and wrote a note saying, this is a stick-up. And I give the words so you can understand this. This, T-H-I-Z-I-Z-A-S-T-I-K-K-U-P, stick-up. And then he put on there, put all your money, M-U-N-Y, in this bag. And while standing in line, he got very nervous as he was about to give the note to the teller because he began to worry that someone knew what he had written on the note and that police might be called when he got to the teller window. So he got up and left the Bank of America branch and crossed the street to the Wells Fargo Bank. After waiting a few minutes in line, he handed his note to the Wells Fargo teller. She read it and surmising from his spelling errors that he wasn't the brightest light in the harbor, told him that she could not accept his stick-up note because it was written on a Bank of America deposit slip. (laughs) And that he would either have to go back to the counter and fill out a Wells Fargo deposit slip or go back to the Bank of America branch. Looking somewhat defeated, the man said, okay, And he left. The Wells Fargo teller then called the police who seized the man as he waited in line at the back of the line of the Bank of America. I could go on for hours. To steal is pretty stupid. And yet God says that we don't rob one another, but we do the dumbest thing that we possibly could and we rob God. We rob God. And just like those robberies that it seems absurd that we will get away with it, God says that we rob Him. Well, how do we rob Him? I want to give you three things very quickly uh, before we get into the outline. Three areas that we rob God. First of all, we rob God with our attitudes. We rob God with our attitudes. When we look at the book of Malachi, we see in Malachi chapter 1 that their attitude was to not give God the respect and the honor that was due to him. God says, I'm your father. God says, I am your master. But if I'm your God, if if I'm your father, if I'm your master, where is the honor due me? Where is the respect due me? We can rob God when we have wrong attitudes about God in our lives. The next thing that we see is that we can rob God uh, through our actions, through our actions. Notice what the text says uh, at the end of chapter one. People come in and they have the wrong attitude about God and wrong attitudes always lead to wrong actions. And as a result of that, people who don't think very highly of God say, you know what, I'll bring my crippled animal, I'll bring my lame animal, my diseased animal, and I will sacrifice that to God because God in, in essence does not mean that much to me. If you've got the wrong attitude about God, you're robbing him. If you act out in a sinful way as the people of Malachi did, you're robbing God as well. But the one that we're going to talk about this morning, what our text talks about, is we can rob God uh, by involving our assets. 
the things that are most uh, worthwhile to us, the things that are most valuable to us. And what the text tells us, if we are not faithful in our giving back to God with our finances, with the things that we have, the text tells us we rob God. So how do we keep from robbing God this morning? How do we uh, begin to put together thoughts and actions that not only bring glory and honor to God, but please God and allow us to remain innocent to this crime of theft or robbery? The answer is found in our text this morning, and it begins by, first of all, remembering, first of all, remember what God has done for you, what God has done for you. Look at verse 6 for a moment. We looked at this last week, but let's just quickly go over it. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. God says, as we learned last week, he doesn't change. And because he doesn't change, we can say that God is completely trustworthy. Now, you may ask, Tim, what does that have to do with giving? It has everything to do with giving. God says the reason uh, that they are not destroyed, the reason why Israel has not come under the condemnation and judgment of God is because God has not changed. What God is saying is, is because I do not change in my grace, my love, and my mercy, I haven't destroyed you because I'm completely consistent that I would show grace and mercy and I've been faithful in doing that. Because God isn't changing. Not only the Israelites, but you and I today are able to live and breathe. We're able to enjoy life. And we've been spared the destruction that God so rightly deserves to give us. We have not only an opportunity to live another day, but to have a relationship with God. And it's because God is unchanging. And because he's unchanging, there are a couple of things we know about him. First of all, that God is completely trustworthy in the promises he's made to us. God is completely trustworthy in the promises he's made to us. If God is never changing and God is completely consistent, then not only is he honest, but he holds to his promises. And so when we deal with the subject of giving, we must realize what God's word says when it promises us some things. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, Paul tells the Philippians, thank you for the gift that the Philippians had given the apostle Paul. And after he thanks them for the wonderful gift out of their poverty that they gave, the text tells us what God promises. He says in verse 19, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches in Christ Jesus. If God is completely trustworthy, if he has not changed, and we must realize that when God says he's going to meet our needs, that he is going to, in fact, meet our needs. What does that have to do with giving? If we truly believe that God's promises for us are completely trustworthy and that God will take care of us and that he'll meet our needs, that we should not worry about uh, the things of this world, but seek first the kingdom of God, then we would recognize that it is freeing to be able to give to God because God promises to take care of us as we obey him and honor him. But notice what else doesn't change. And notice what else is completely trustworthy, and that is the plans God has for us. The plans God has for us. Now, God told these people, 
just a couple generations before they uh, came to uh, back to Israel from captivity, something in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 and 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Now this is written to, this is shared to Jeremiah and Jeremiah then to the people of Israel. We need to understand Jeremiah lived during a time where the people of God were in captivity. They're hanging out with the Babylonians. The Babylonians are their masters. The Babylonians are their rulers. And the people of God are saddened by living in captivity to this evil nation. And God addresses the prophet Jeremiah and he says, 70 more years and this captivity will come to an end because I have plans for you. I have plans to take care of you, plans to prosper you, plans to give you a hope. And so what takes place? God is truthful. 70 years take place and the captivity comes to an end. Jeremiah and the other Israelites begin to find themselves through the work of Nehemiah, Haggai, Joshua, the high priest. They all start heading back to Israel. They have their own land back. And God is faithful in his plans for Israel. But what do the people of Malachi's day do? Do they give God the gratitude that God, uh, the, the gratitude that God deserved? No. In fact, the text tells them that they begin to murmur. The text tells us that they become angry in the book of Haggai as a result of God not taking care of them in the way that they thought was best. And so what takes place? They begin to give God second best. They hedge on what they are called to give. What a wonderful thought for us today. God has plans for us. God says in Philippians 1, 6, that God is faithful to see us unto the day of completion. Meaning God has a plan for you. And God that began the good work in you, that started something in your life, is faithful to see it to completion. He says, I, I know what I want to do with you. I know how I want to work with you and how to grow you. And if we understood that and realized that God is completely faithful then we would understand that it makes no sense for us to hedge on God in our service and our giving back to God. But to give ourselves wholeheartedly, he promises he's going to take care of us and he promises he's got a good plan for us. And if we hold to those two unchanging principles that God declares, then giving will become so much easier in our life. Notice the second thing we see in verse 7. We see if we desire to find victory in our giving, not only must we remember what God has done for us, but we must return to God. We must return to God. Notice what the text says, return to me. This is God speaking. And he says that he is unchanging in his love for them. He says, I've loved you. And I already talked about what verse two talks about. He's had this incredible perpetual love for the people. But now he's calling them back. He says, you're far off. You're away from me. And it's time for you to come back. Now, was this departure of the people in Malachi's day a recent departure? No, just that God did not change. We talked about last week that the people had not changed. Ever since the garden, the people found themselves in rebellion to God and his decrees. And so what God is saying is the people in Malachi's day saying, my children, come back to me. Come back and, and have intimacy with me. I want you to be close to me. I want to give you the opportunity to experience my love and my mercy and my grace. So return to me. But how are they to return? I want to give you three very quick steps 
that involve that are involved in that journey. Number one, if we want to return, it must involve acknowledging our departure, acknowledging our departure. The people say, how are we to return? Now, this is not a question, if you will, of some people who have lost their way and are asking someone who they know has the direction saying, okay, God, you say we need to return to you. Well, how do we return? Give us the directions on how that's to happen. This is not what is being articulated in the Hebrew language here. What is being articulated is, is that they're saying, how are we to return if we've never left? Who needs to return? It's not us, God. Maybe you left us and and aren't aware of it. And God says, I've not changed. I've always been here. I always will be here. And yet you find yourself far off from God. These people were unwilling to acknowledge that they had departed from God. Sadly, we as people think that we haven't departed from God. Sadly, we as people think that we're okay with God. And yet the book of Isaiah through the prophet says that we all like sheep have gone astray. We've all departed from God and his plans for us. We've all taken God's promises and said, forget it. I don't want nothing to do with that. And as a result of that, the only way we can find ourselves back with God is to acknowledge that we left him in the first place. Jesus tells the story in Luke chapter 15 about a son who takes his father's inheritance and runs off to a distant land to then find himself living it up in perpetual parties and pursuit of pleasures. And after a short season of time when his money runs out, he finds himself in a pigsty. And what happens? He begins to remember how good he had it in his father's house. And what does he say? He says, I wouldn't live like this if I was back with my father. In that phrase, there's an acknowledgement of his departure. I went the wrong way. I went and followed the wrong things. But the second thing we see is not only an acknowledgement of our departure, but admitting of our sin. An admitting of our sin. Once we've acknowledged that we too, just like the prodigal son, have found ourselves in a mess... And it's not because of God. We as Christians, so many times when bad things happen to us because of the consequences of our sin, we point our finger at God and we say, God, how could you do this? Without recognizing that it is our departure that has brought forth these terrible consequences in our lives. As we work through this world, as we walk through this world, as we live through this world, we should be brought front and center that our departure from God has brought seismic changes to this world. Every health condition that we have, every type of uh, disgruntled um, relationship or trouble that we have with one another, every war, every injustice that is done is not because of God, but because of the sin that has been brought into the world because of you and I. It results and it begins in that place, our departure from God. And so we have to admit our sin. If we want to return to God, we have to be willing to admit that we have missed it. And not only missed it, but we have sinned grievously against the Lord. Back in Luke 15, verse 17 and 18, the prodigal son says, I will go back to my father and I will say that I have sinned against you and sinned against heaven. What he's saying is, is when in doing this, I hurt somebody and I hurt 
one of them being my father. But I also hurt my father in heaven because I've sinned against him. You want to return to God? It isn't just acknowledging that you're far off from God, but it's also admitting that you've sinned and that sin has done something to your relationship with other people and your relationship with God. The final thing we see is that it involves asking for forgiveness and guidance. Asking for his forgiveness and guidance. The prodigal son comes back in Luke 15 and he goes and he bows as, as he's running back to the home. We know that the father runs to him. He falls at his father's feet and he says, I don't deserve anything. Just make me a slave. Make me a servant in your home. I, don't, I can't be your son anymore. I know that. And in that he is saying, I'm sorry. And I recognize my sin. And I acknowledge that because of my departure, it has changed my relationship with my father. That's what he's saying. But in that, the father says, no, you will not be my servant. You will not be my slave. You will be my son. And you never ceased being my son. And as a result of that, I'm going to go kill the fattened calf. I'm going to throw a party and invite all my friends to rejoice that my son has come back. And yet we also see guidance. Turn for a moment, if you're in the book of Malachi, to the book of James. To the book of James. If you're in Malachi, uh, go to your right. Uh, probably about uh, 85% of the way through the book of, or the New Testament, you'll find the book of James after Hebrews and before 1 Peter. And James speaks about this idea of returning to God in James chapter 4. Listen to the guidance that God's Word gives. Verse 7 of James 4. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Now notice what he says. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Maybe today you're far off from God. And before you can even start giving back to God or serving God, there's something that has to happen before that. And that is that you return to God. Maybe you find yourself uh, just uh, deep in sin. Maybe you don't even find yourself deep in sin, but you find yourself just so uh, casual with God that God has become nothing more to you than a Sunday morning date with a group of other people at church. If that's the case, God says, return to me. Now notice that in the beginning of chapter 3 of Malachi, he says, return to me. Why? Because time is short. And the Bible says that he's coming back. And he's coming back to refine those who love him and who fear him. And he's coming back to judge those who find themselves in casualness, who find themselves not caring about what God is all about or caring what God's plans or purposes are in this life. So what are we to do? We're to submit ourselves to God. We are to resist the devil, not to fall for those things anymore. We're to come near to God and God promises he'll be near to us. It means that we have to purify ourselves and wash our hands. It means that we should grieve, mourn, and wail and change our laughter. Why does he say all that? Change our attitude about life. And what that means is not that we can't enjoy life and pursue life, but understand that living that type of life is not laughter. It is not joy, but it is gloom and despair because it leads to destruction. 
even before he gets into giving, he says, return to me. Look at the third point this morning. The third point is that if we want to find victory in our giving, that it involves realizing the importance of giving. It involves realizing the importance of giving. Look at verse 8 and 9. He says, Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? God says, in your tithes and offerings. Notice what he says because of it. You're under a curse. The whole nation is. Because you're robbing me. And he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. That's, that's the temple. That there may be food in my house. And he says, test me in this. Here God articulates in our text that it is very important for his people to understand the importance of giving back to God. God is serious about us being stewards of not only our time and our talents, but also our treasures. The things in our pocketbook, the things that are on our bank statements that seem so important to us. The giving of those assets, the money that we have. God is serious about it, and he's serious about us giving back to him. Now that brings up a question. Does God need our money? Absolutely not. It's not about the money, but it's about the heart that is behind giving it. Because God knows that where our treasure is, there our heart is also. And America has put their treasure in their money instead of into God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Notice what happens. God is so serious about the subject of money. Notice what He says in chapter 3, verse 3 and 4 of Malachi. He's going to send His Son. Who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? He'll be a refiner. He'll be a launderer. He'll be a purifier of silver. Look at verse 3. He'll purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Why does he do all this? Why is he going to reform and refine the people of Israel? Look at what it says in verse 3. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable. Why does God refine us? So that we can give back to God and that our giving back to God will be acceptable. So we need to understand the importance of giving. It should be the greatest desire in every Christian's heart to give back to God. And we must allow God, if we have areas of weakness in this, to allow God to refine us in this area. But sadly, there's a lot of refining that needs to be done. American evangelicals, whom we would say that we are a part of, really fail in this area of giving. I want to share with you just some very quick statistics about where we as a people in America find ourselves. The Barna study group says that the average evangelical Christian's giving in 2004 was approximately $691.93. This comes out to be an average giving of $13.31 per week. Now balance this with another stat. According to the Pew Research Group, the American evangelicals collectively have made in the same year, 2004, $2.86 trillion in income. Now you say, well... One of the biggest reasons that I know I'm not able to give, and maybe that's why a lot of people aren't able to give, is because of debt. 
We have a lot of debt in our lives. There's a lot of bills. Tim, you don't realize the amount of bills that we have. Let me assure you of this. In fact, the Barna study group said this, 70% of evangelical Christians, and this may be true of some in this place, paid more in credit card interest than they gave to the Lord. 70%. Seven out of every 10, if we were an average group, pay more in credit card interest than we do giving back to the Lord. What does that say about us? It says that our stuff is more important than our Savior. It says that our debt is more important than our Deliverer. This is something we as a people must grab a hold of. Because if we don't, the text tells us we rob God. Just to give you an idea, if the evangelical Christians as a whole would give 10% of their income in one year, it would generate an additional $164 billion in money for ministry and missions across the world. This is a serious issue. So how do we fix it? We must first understand the significance of giving. Understand the significance of giving. God is very focused in on giving. We don't recognize that, but we must understand that it's one of the most uh, talked about themes in all of Scripture. That is stewardship. 16 out of 38 of Jesus' parables speak on the subject of stewardship. Well, there are 300 verses on prayer, 500 on faith in the Bible. There are more than 2,000 verses on the subject of stewardship. Yet we find ourselves, especially here in America, being the most affluent country in all the world, we find ourselves trying to serve two masters, God and money. And yet we love our money and we rob God of what he deserves. So what do we do? We change that. Some may be saying, Tim, I don't know how to give. You guys don't even pass a plate, so I, sometimes I forget to give. What do I do? We must understand not only the significance of giving, but the systematic nature of giving. Look at what verse 8 says, that we are to give tithes and offerings. Let's talk about that for a moment. A tithe in the Hebrew literally means a tenth. What he was saying is, is you are to give a tenth of something. Now, if we look at other Old Testament passages, we know that God demanded a tenth, the first fruit, the first 10% of everything, your grain, your income, your herd, whatever you had, you were to give a tenth of it away. We also know that there were other tithes that were given to the church or to the, uh, the nation of Israel, to the people in the temple. In fact, the Old Testament Jew would have given 23% of his income back to the Lord's work. Now you say, wait a minute, Tim, that, that doesn't make sense. 23% of the income? Yes. Now we do have to give a disclaimer. During... During Old Testament times, Israel was under the theocratic form of government. God was their king, and the worship was a national worship. God, Jehovah, they worshiped one God in the nation of Israel. And so taxes and uh, offerings were given. That 23% was given back to God. Now you say, well, hey, uh, if I look right, God is not the king in the United States. We live in a democracy. We're under a secular government. So we don't have to do that, right? And so some will say, well, Tim, you can't say that we are called to tithe. I would say, you're right. We're not called to tithe. Nowhere in the New Testament does it tell us that we have to tithe. But then I also will go to the other side and say, nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that we are not to tithe. 
people that hold to a strong uh, opinion that tithing is outdated in the, old, in the New Testament says that Jesus abolished the tithe. That's not true. Jesus never abolished the tithe. So what do we do with that? Well, I'll tell you for one, I'm not a strong advocate on either. To me, it's a dumb argument. Whether you should give 10% or not give 10%, whether you're to give, uh, you know, uh, 10% or 2% or 5%, it doesn't, that, that isn't the issue. God is all about something more than that. Because you say, well, 10%, then I hear what people say is what it is, is it's 10% of your gross. Give 10% of your gross and I, and I get people that, that get angry when they hear that finances are down and they say, why won't everybody tithe like me? Look at my little lapel pin that I have, tither. We don't give those out, by the way. And so they say, I give. And not only do I give 10%, but I give 10% of gross. And then they get this real big bozo pin. Meaning, I've, even before I give to Uncle Sam, I give to the Lord. I'm hardcore. And to me, I sit there and say, that's nonsense. Because what does the New Testament talk about? I want to give you just some quick things. 1 Corinthians for a moment. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. What does the New Testament talk about? In this time of grace, what does it say? It says some things that we must understand because giving is more about the attitude, my friends, than the amount. Notice what it says in 1 Corinthians 16. It says now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. What is said here? Paul tells the Corinthians, he tells us today, that number one, write this in your outlines, giving should be punctual. There's a certain time that giving is to take place. It says on the first day of every week. What it's saying is it needs to be systematic. Make a decision when you're going to give. God doesn't want you just to give uh, one time a year and just to drop a whole lot of money into the, the box. It is to be systematic. It is to be punctual. There's supposed to be a time that it's supposed to happen on a certain day. Notice what it says next. It's to be personal. Each one of you should set aside a sum of money. It says saving it up. This idea is not that it's a nickel or dime, but it's the idea that it is a, uh, a decent amount of money. And what I mean by that is that there is some saving that is taking place. There is some collecting. There's this uh, knowledge that to make sure I give to the Lord, there are some things I have to do to make sure that I have the money to give on that day. I'm going to challenge some people today. If you're just giving a token gift to God without thinking through what you're giving and setting it aside, that whole idea in the Greek is, is that you're, you're figuring out what you can give you're determining how you're going to do it. And then when the first day of the week comes, you give it. But notice what it says. It says each one of us should do it. This isn't something just for the elders or the deacons or the old people in the church. You know, us young people, we got kids and formula's expensive and those kids need diapers and we wouldn't expect you to give back to the Lord. The Lord understands the cost of diapers. It doesn't say that when gas prices are $4.50 or $140.50. It doesn't matter what gas is a gallon. The text says each one of us should do it. But notice what it says next. 
How much money should we set aside? That which is in keeping with your income. This is idea of proportional giving. It is, it is punctual, it is personal, it is proportional. Meaning, if you make $100,000 a year, let me get rid of that. If you make $10,000 a year and you give $1 to the Lord, that's not, uh, if you will, very proportional. Now you say, well, Tim, you haven't told me what to give. Why aren't you going to tell me what to give? I'm going to share something with you. I do it as an example. Please don't think of this in any way as being boasting whatsoever. But some years back, Amanda and I spent some time really considering what we were called to give. And we began to pray and consider. And I remember the Lord really working on my heart and addressing to me that God, God was telling me, Tim, I own everything. Everything that you have, your ability to work, your ability to take in income, everything I've done for you is all from me. And then I was remembering how the Lord has saved me and how he's ministered to me and how he's given me this indescribable gift of Christ, his son, that he didn't have to do it while I was a sinner, while Amanda was a sinner, and she was a sinner, bear in mind, while she was a sinner, God demonstrated his love for us that he sent his son. And he begins to put this statement in and put this statement in. And then I remember reading a book where it says that if you want to understand what's most important about a man, what's most important in a man's life, look at his checkbook. And I began to say, I don't know who's going to see my checkbook, but whether they see my checkbook, whether they see my life, I want them to know that I am first and foremost set apart to God, that God comes first. And at that time, we weren't giving where we should have been, but we made a commitment that at some time in the future that our number one budget expenditure would be giving back to God. Our mortgage wouldn't take precedent. Our car payments wouldn't take precedent. Our children's education fund wouldn't take precedent. That because God has done far more than any college, any car, or any house, I don't want anybody to ever say Tim was set apart for something else other than God and God alone. And it took years to get there. But I'm so thankful that I can say today I'm there. And so I realize and I understand how hard it is for many of us to pursue that kind of desire. And maybe you're not called to that. It doesn't mean that all people are called to that. I'm not expecting everybody to go to that level. God has called me to that. And I don't look at it as a drudgery. I look at it as a great delight. But what has God called you to? Now you say, Tim, I'd love to give, but I don't have the ability to give. Then I want to ask you a question. Why is it that you can't give? Is it for good reasons? I remember for some time when we did the Journey of Faith campaign, many of you know that our middle son, Joshua, who was born, had this kidney disorder. And he had a couple surgeries to take care of it. And I'll tell you, money got real thin. It got real thin. And the debt started to climb up. And I wanted to get out of giving back to uh, the church. Man, that would have made things a lot easier to pay off these things and not get these bad letters from people saying, pay us now. And we would say, well, we got $5. Here's the five bucks, you know, we'll get you back in the next 30 years. There are some times where we can in good conscience stand and say, you know what? I don't have the money. Some of you today are here and say, I'd love to give more to God, but I just don't have it. And if you can come up with a reason that you believe is God honoring, 
and that the debt is not as a result of something that you've done to pursue something for yourself, then stand back in good conscience and say, I'm giving all that I can to the Lord. But you know what? That is the exception, not the rule. Because you know what? Here in America, the reason we can't afford things is because we live in houses that we shouldn't be. We're driving more than we should in the cars that we drive. We eat at places we shouldn't be eating. We buy our kids things that they don't need. And we fill up storage containers because we can't fit everything into our two or three car garages or in our storage sheds out in the back. That's why we can't give to God. And if that's where you're at today, then I want you to feel guilty because I should feel guilty because that's not what God is calling us as a people to do. God says, if you do that, you're robbing me. You're robbing me. We need to give in accordance to what God has given us. Have you ever thought to what God has given you? Have you ever realized that without God, you could do nothing? That without God, you would have no ability to make money? Without God, you would not have the family that you have? Without God, you wouldn't be able to take care of the kids that you have? If we would start to realize what God has done for us, then we would begin to think about what we should be doing for God. It's been said that the Old Testament told us that we give to God knowing that God is going to give in return. In the New Testament, it goes opposite. Knowing what God has given us, we ought to give in return. The Bible says in the book of, uh, in one of the Corinthian letters that we are to thank God for his indescribable gift. The greatest gift ever given to anyone is the gift of Jesus Christ. What is our money in comparison to Jesus Christ? Take some time and prayerfully consider how you might give to the Lord. It doesn't just mean giving to this church. It doesn't just mean giving uh, to support Village Bible. In fact, you know what? I, I found it ironic. I've written down, as I knew this would be a good illustration at some point, of the seven times that I've spoken on giving, six of them have been the lowest Sundays in that quarter for giving. You think I want to talk about giving? Seems to have a backwards effect. That's why I always laugh when people say, you need to do more talking about giving. I said, do you see the numbers after I talk about giving? You shouldn't say anything at all. Then people will give. Well, why should we give? There's a strategy of giving. I need to finish this up. There's a strategy of giving. Turn for a moment to 2 Corinthians. Why do we give? Why is it we do this giving as Christians? The answer is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. I want you to write down three words under this point of this strategy of giving. Write down this. First, we see a principle. Then we see a procedure. And then we're given a promise. A principle, a procedure, and then a promise. If you want to write that in your Bibles, that may give you a good understanding of what Paul is doing here. Notice what he says in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 8. Remember this. Here's the, the principle. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. You want to honor God with your giving? Then give graciously and generously to the Lord, knowing He has given generously. And the Bible says you will reap in that generosity. You sow sparingly to it, you'll reap the sparingly that God has given back to you. Notice the procedure. Verse 7, it says, uh, let's see here, reap, uh, reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Please understand me in this. If you are going to give as a result of this message because I've told you to do so, then I tell you not to give. 
don't give. The church doesn't need your money like that. The Bible says, look at what it says. Here's the procedure that God loves a cheerful giver. If you gave a million dollars today and did it out of guilt, the Bible says that God isn't honored with that. God doesn't even love that. He loves one who gives a dollar out of his heart that says, God, back to you. I give you this dollar that means so much to me back to you. Remember what happened. Jesus confronts the Pharisees and says, hey, you give a tithe on everything, but you're damned. But then he looks at the woman who gives the, uh, the widow's might and he says she is to be honored. She is to be the one who is to be imitated. Again, it's not about the amount, but about the attitude. Then the promise, look at what it says. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. God says you give generously. Understand that you give with a cheerful heart. And this is what I promise you. I'll take care of you. There's a lot of alls and a lot of everys in that verse. All things, all times, all that you need and abound in every good work because God is faithful and his righteousness endures forever. Finally, we see a submission, a submission in this point here that is shown in giving. The Bible says in Malachi, test me in this. This idea here is prove me. Let me prove you. Let me prove to you that I will take care of you. The idea here is when we give, understand that the attitude that we have is submission. When I give, my attitude is this. God, it's all yours. God, everything I have is yours. God, you are completely needed in my life. I need you at every moment, at every time. If you were to abandon me for a second, I would fall so miserably. Lord, so out of that idea of submission, I give you my heart, I give you my life, I give you my time and my energy, and I give you my money, and I give you my assets. Does that hurt sometimes? Absolutely. But it means we need to submit and say, Lord, I trust you. I trust you that I can put you to the test and that you'll be found faithful. Many reasons, many times the reason why we don't give is because we don't submit ourselves to God. That goes back to that return that he talks about in verse 7. But notice the final thing that we are to do, we are to rejoice in God's blessings. Verse 10 through 12 speaks about when we give to the storehouse, that there's food in the storehouse. God says he will pour out so much blessing. That word pour out in the Hebrew is used one other place, and it talks about when God opened the floodgates of heaven during the flood. What is God saying? I've got some big celestial pictures of blessing. And if you will be obedient in this, I will pour out my blessings upon you. Now notice how he pours out the blessings before you close your Bibles. He says, I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops and vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will be called, call you blessed because yours will be a delightful land. God says, I'll take care of you. I'll make sure that the disease and the pestilence doesn't fall upon you that it does other individuals. Now you say, well, how does that involve my giving? It involves this quite simply. When you give to God, God, don't, don't fall in line with the thinking that God makes you rich, happy, and healthy. I'm not telling you that. What I'm telling you is, is that when you give, God says he'll take care of your needs. And I've been blown away by how God has taken care of our needs. God has given us things through the working of other people giving 
to take care of needs that we've had. I've shared with you a couple different times during that time where uh, Joshua was uh, sick. Uh, our water pump went out in our van and I had run out of any kind of money I had. And I just, just quietly said, you know what? We're in my small group. We're, we're, we're in some financial need and I know the Lord will take care of it. But if you guys would just pray. And that day, the host of the small group came in and he said, we, we got together and we prayed and we know you need this more than we do. And there was $900 for us to go get our water pump and some other things fixed in the van. And I look and I say, Malachi's right that our vines and our fields will not cast their fruit and that our devour, the devouring of our crops will not take, take place. So even when those things happen, God takes care of us. And there are times after time that has happened. Uh, this last week, I was working on the porch of my parents' house. I had John Pilkington with me and we were working. I said, you know, this is, a, this is an important uh, deck or porch for us. My dad was serving as an elder here at the church and uh, my parents have the gift of hospitality. And we had an uh, interim pastor named Paul uh, Michalek who was uh, here, and he didn't have anywhere to go on Easter. And we had a big family, and we said, Paul, come over on Easter. And Paul came over, and he was a quieter guy, and he just had a blast with all these loud bedals yelling and screaming. And he was so excited, and yet he knew my parents didn't have much in the area of money. They had a struggling grocery store at the time. And Paul was known to be a, a carpenter. And Paul walked onto our front porch, and our front porch was falling apart. There were holes in the floor. The posts that were holding it up were falling apart. And my dad not, not only wasn't the greatest of carpenters, he didn't have money. And I'll never forget about 6 o'clock that next Saturday morning, after Easter was done, we woke up to hammers banging and men working. And there were men, and I remember Rich Wood was there. I remember Dave Heidel was there. Some other men from the church came. There was no bill of sale for the stuff that was needed for that porch. But godly men said, you know what? I may not be able to give millions to uh, the building campaign or give riches galore, but I can give swinging a hammer to a brother in Christ. And you know what? That porch stands today. All we did is added a railing and put some new stain on it. And it stands today, some 15, 17 years later, not a hole in it, completely intact, why? Because when you honor God, God will honor you. Where's your giving at today? Where's your heart at today? Do you really want to be known as one who robs God? Or do you want to be known as one who the people around you say, you are blessed and you are a delightful land? Let that be known of us here at this church. Let that be known of us as Christians. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, we make no apologies for talking about this subject of money because it's in your word. And we preach your word passionately. And we preach it as it is written. And Lord, you say that when we fail in this, we rob you. Lord, let us not be known as a, those who rob, those who steal from our infinite God in heaven. But Lord, if we're going to do that, it means returning back to you. Father, I pray that each of us would say, are we away from you? Have we departed from you? And if that is the case, Lord, that we would return to you as quick as possible. But Lord, you say our return involves a process of not only giving of ourselves and submitting to you, but giving of things that are most important to us. So Lord, today we give what is most important to us. Our time is important and we give that to you. Our energy is important, and we give that to you. The money in our pockets and in our bank accounts is 
hugely important to us, Lord. But we give it to you. Not because we have to. Because you love a cheerful giver and we want to do it. So Lord, I pray that we would be a church that desires to give all that we can in proportion with our income to give back to you, knowing that you don't expect us to give more than what we have, but to give what you have given to us. So every household here, every family here, every representative that makes up this body of Christ, that we would look into ourselves and ask, am I robbing you? And not look at our neighbors or our friends, but ask of ourselves, in my life, am I robbing you? And if that's the case, to return. And Lord, before I close this prayer, I want to also say, Lord, how thankful I am that this church has been served and been blessed by people who have given so much back to you. That, Lord, we've never been found in want. We have this wonderful building. We have this wonderful property. We have wonderful staff who are able to help minister. And it's because people have been faithful to you. So, Lord, I thank you for them. And, Lord, I pray that they will be blessed and that the ministry of this place will go forth and that they will know that the word of God, because of the money that is given, is reaching the far-off lands through the work of our missionaries and those we send and that the Fox Valley area will know the name of Jesus Christ because of the ministry that takes place here. So, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. And it's our honor to give back to you. In Jesus' name, amen.